Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by... It's so much more than just a profile picture. At Catholic Singles, our platform offers you many opportunities to get to know the person behind the picture. Sign up today at catholicsingles.com. Good News Ministries of GNM.org. It's the Catholic place for growing your faith. Good News Ministries will provide you with faith-building reflections, virtual retreats, prayer resources, and lots more. All of it is free. Visit gnm.org today. Welcome to the Dignity of Women, where we dig deep into the vocation and dignity of women in the church in modern times and as an answer to the call for a new evangelization. I'm your host, Kimberly Cook. Joining me today is Doug Johnson. Doug is a stay-at-home dad and husband to pro-life speaker and advocate Abby Johnson. He was portrayed on screen by actor Brooks Ryan in the recently released movie Unplanned, chronicling Abby's journey from climbing the ranks of Planned Parenthood to advocating for the life of the unborn. Together, Doug and Abby have eight children on earth and two in heaven. Doug graduated from Sam Houston University in 2006 with a degree in kinesiology with the plan to work in a gym, but his path instead led him to teaching. After teaching high school special education for five years, the Johnsons moved to the Austin area and decided it was better for Doug to stay home with the kids. For the last four years, he has been a stay-at-home dad. Doug and Abby joined the Catholic Church in Easter 2012. In the last few years, they have welcomed four more boys to their family. Doug keeps himself sane by blogging, building and refinishing furniture, watching movies, and traveling with Abby whenever he gets the chance. It should also be noted that Doug is something of a beer connoisseur and snob, an expensive hobby, but he enjoys hanging out with the guys and enjoying a couple beers. Thanks so much for being with us today. I've probably been a stay-at-home dad more than four years. I've been at this for almost seven years, I think. Oh, you need to update your uh, page there, huh? Blogging maybe four years, but stay-at-home dad gig, I've been at that longer than I was a teacher, so it's pretty uh, grounded into it. So yeah, I need to go back and fix that. Yeah, you need to get those years of credibility up there. Right, yeah, they matter. (laughs) So Doug, (laughs) in my personal opinion, it's hard to beat a good oatmeal or coffee stout. As a beer connoisseur, is there any advice you can offer me? Oh, no, I think I like imperial stouts, like the Russian imperial stouts. Oh, I don't think I've had that before. What imperial means is uh, they have above 8% alcohol in them. Mm -hmm. I just think they're a little stronger, and I like a lot of flavor. I like, you know, to feel like a thousand pounds in your mouth, you know, just there's one called Old Rasputin and it's a, an Imperial Russian stout and you can get it year round and it's fantastic. You can drink it in hundred degree weather yes. and it's still pretty good for you. And then my favorite would be uh, the breakfast stout made by oh, Founders Uh huh. and it's got oatmeal, coffee, chocolate. Oh, that's all my favorite things. All the things you want in a beer. And what I would say is my advice would be fry up some bacon. 
<laughs> in the middle of the night. You're watching a movie at 10 p.m., 12 o'clock, grab some bacon, grab a couple of those beers, and it, it's life-changing. Wow, that sounds, that sounds great. I still have yet to try a peanut butter stout, though. That's kind of on my bucket list right now. I had a couple, and they're, they're okay. Oh, really? They're, okay, all right. Yeah, yeah. So not something you'd like pour over cereal or anything like that? No, I had one. It was called Sweep the Leg after uh, the Karate Kid movie. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was a... It's a peanut butter stout. I think it's uh, strictly in Texas. And oh. you can find it in most bars in a bottle, but I don't think it leaves Texas very much. Most things don't leave Texas, right? Yeah, not if they know it's good for them. <laughs> okay. So, but it, it was a decent beer. If you handed it to me, I wouldn't be like, ugh. It wouldn't be it. like handing you a Bud Light or something, right? No, no nothing like that. <laughs> that would just be insulting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you named your own spot on the World Wide Web, Doug on Tap, where you share insights into life as a stay-at-home dad of eight kids now and husband to pro-life advocate and former Planned Parenthood director, Abby Johnson. First, explain the role of a stay-at-home dad, which many men are quick to say they could never do. And how has it challenged or solidified your confidence as provider and head of the household? Well, it was a struggle at first, you know, because you have to redefine. You know, I was raised that men, you go out and provide for your home by bringing home the bacon. You had to have a paycheck. You had to be willing to work hard. And, you know, when we had our first daughter, Grace, right before she was born, at one point I had three jobs. So I, I'm not scared of work in like getting jobs and going out there and hustling and doing the best I can. So, I mean, I worked as a teacher's aide working in special ed. I taught a weightlifting class. And then I went back to my old framing job at Hobby Lobby. I almost took on a fourth job with Budweiser going into bars and trying to get young women to buy one of their products over like Miller Ultra or something like that, right? No way. You were specifically targeting women. I was supposed to go up to college age girls and maybe some of the, you know, the buff dudes that drink this ultra light beers, which I just think, just go home and drink water. But anyway, <laughs> I was supposed to, hey, hey, so I see you like these super light, low calorie beers. Why don't you try the Budweiser version of that? And I felt probably wasn't a good idea to go into bars and talk to young, gorgeous women while your pregnant wife is at home with your first <laughs> child. I was like, I, I can do without the 15 bucks an hour. We'll go without it. So I didn't take that job, but I almost had four jobs. But anyway, now moving forward, once I took on the stay-at-home dad gig, it was like, uh, okay, so what do I do with myself? We only had one child at the time. Little did I know we were just going to start line jumping everybody we knew <laughs> with kids. And we went from a family of three to a family of nine, I think, six years right i know Maybe. you guys caught up quick you weren't messing oh, yeah. around well, twins in an adoption they up your numbers really yes fast. that'll so, put you in the game yeah but you know, I thought like, oh, well, Grace is at school. I'll clean up the house kind of, and then maybe I'll go to a movie. And then I just kind of caught, caught up in having too much fun and not really provide, like really providing what my family needed as far as like a stable home, discipline and doing meals as I should. And just really making it a place where Abby could come home and know that everything was taken care of in this realm while she was out doing her thing out there. And so that took a couple of years to kind of figure out and some, some conversations, I guess you could say, between Abby and I were expectations had to be kind of talked about right. what she expected from me and what I thought that that job would be like. So I really had to redefine what it meant to be a provider. It wasn't about bringing home money. It was about showing my kids what it looks like to serve others mm. through serving them, if that right. makes sense. Yeah. So that's kind of really how it started out. And then it's just kind of developed over time. And now it's just a big, what can I laugh at now? You know, right. <laughs> 
Yeah, people <laughs> probably ask you all the time, how do you get through the day? And I know for most stay-at-home parents are moms. And mm-hmm. there's this experience when, you know, you can have the best husband, the best dad, but then if he's left alone with the children for a certain number of hours, like a weekend or something, like an overnight, and then the clock's still ticking. He's aged 10 years and, you know, kind of like doesn't know if he's coming or going. It's like this thing happens. So a lot of guys are quick to say, I could never do that. I, I respect you. I give you a lot of props for that, but I could never do that. What do you say to that? Or what advice do you give to a dad that's just going into that position? from men and women. And I, I get it sometimes. Like Abby tried it and she really couldn't do it. She didn't have the patience. Now she has to stay a different kind of busy. Whereas I, I'm all about the labor. I don't like to use my brain that much. I just like to work and move around and use my hands and build things and be a problem solver. And so when men say that, oh, I can never do that, I'm like, well, you never know. And a lot of them say that in a sense that, no, I have to have that status of a job. Yes. You know, that sort of thing. I have to have the accolades. that. To feel like a man, and I'm like, oh well, I promise, I'm no less of a man. Like I, I made eight children. <laughs> That's you know, right. So. <laughs> there you go. There's your accolades. <laughs> right. You know, and I feel like, you know, I like I built a pretty cool bunk bed system for my four boys, and I uh, repurposed things around the house, and I am fairly handy, and I cook. When I moved out of the house, I could cook for myself, clean, do laundry, all that kind of stuff. There was no gender role when it came to chores. Right. And so I feel like that's another thing I have to tell some men, young men, especially going into marriage or thinking about it, like there's no, oh, that's a woman's job. That's a man's job. It's mm-hmm. a team effort and you just do it and you understand your strengths and your talents. And if your strength is not bath time, I get it. You still need to participate, but, you know, find another area where your strength is so that you can give your partner a break. Right. right. So they're giving them a bath while you're cooking dinner. I mean, you just kind of find your spot. You try to stay patient with each other, too, while you're finding it out, because it's really easy to get upset with each other. Like, yes. why am I always having to do that? Well, because I don't know what I'm doing. That's right. why. You're so good at it. I love you. Yes. Yes. That's much better than we do not scream in this household. Oh, yes, we do. <laughs> My kids always call me out on that. Like, oh, you're doing it right now. I just talk like this all the time now. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's when you get to say things like, you'll understand when you're old. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so you attended a Christian high school and during your senior year spent six weeks on abortion, including watching The Silent Scream. Upon graduation, you considered yourself very pro-life. Fast mm-hmm. forward to your friendship with Abby. What most people don't know is that you were actually a guest at her first marriage, which resulted in two abortions. The second abortion via the RU486 pill caused her hemorrhaging and severe blood loss. You said you were probably the only friend she had to fall back on and probably the only person who knew about the abortion. Describe the scene when you got to her apartment at midnight and how your past pro-life convictions were challenged by the reality of that. Uh, I don't know if my convictions were all that challenged because I was kind of caught up in taking care of one of my best friends. So you kind of forget about how like, okay, yes, I understand she just had an abortion and she killed her child. And but now I'm looking at my friend who is literally suffering. Okay, so when I got to the apartment, 
And I found her. I went into her room, knocked on the door, went in the room, and she kind of moaned, hey, I'm in here. She was back in bed, white as a ghost, you know, from blood loss. And she kind of just told me what happened. So I went in the bathroom, and uh, she had done a fairly good job of cleaning up, but there were still, like, it was like a CSI crime scene. There was still blood splatter on the baseboards. And she didn't let the water out of the tub, which was a, it wasn't red, but it wasn't pink. It was somewhere in the middle. There was that much blood and probably about a foot deep of water in a bathtub. So if you can imagine that. And then uh, all around the toilet, you know, where she sat and got up from the tub to the toilet and just trying to get herself comfortable and, like, maneuver herself into the right position to try to go through what she was going through. And I'm sure it was very traumatizing. And what I have always felt terrible about was friends of mine came into town. I hadn't seen in a while, and they're like, hey, let's go to the gym we used to go to and play volleyball. So I went with them, and Abby texted me, hey, are you still with your friends? Yeah, yeah, we're still having a fun time. I was like, how are you doing? And I'm fine. And she kept checking in with me, almost kind of like, hey, when are you coming over? I just, I wish she had been a little more straightforward about what was going on. I would have been a little quicker to come over there. Right. So I get there, and I'm like, oh, man, I'm out having fun with my friends, and she's over here going through this crazy crisis. And uh, I tell you, for about a month after that, she wasn't the same Abby. It definitely changed her. Maybe a month to two months. Man, she she wasn't as fun. It was almost like it was always in the back of her head. Because she still dealt with pain and passing clots and cramping and that sort of thing. So you almost kind of forget about your convictions in that moment. Right. About abortion. And you're just trying to take care of your friend who's right there in front of you and still deserves dignity and respect and uh, somebody to take care of because now she'd go to her mom. You know, she called Planned Parenthood and they were like, oh, heating pads and ibuprofen. I'm surprised she didn't go to the hospital for that with that much blood loss and everything. She she had dry socket when she had her wisdom teeth taken out. She didn't go to the hospital for that. I mean, <laughs> I tell her, like, worst case scenario is her middle name when she goes into medical things. And <laughs> it just always seems to happen to her. And, of course, it, it did in this instance. You know, I'm glad it was in the movie because I hope there are other women that experienced that. It was like, oh, me too. That confirms yes. my story. And I went through that too, and people don't believe me. And now here it is on the big screen. and Or how bad know, it is. Like, People might have been like, oh, it couldn't have been that bad. You know, you're blowing it out of proportion. Come on. You took a pill. It mm-hmm. gently evacuates your yeah, uterus, yeah, you know. Like Come uterus. on. Wasn't even close. And so that affected her for a while. And it was probably a few months after that, pretty close to the end of her divorce, once the paperwork was done, that we began our relationship. And I don't know. I guess you kind of like put that in the back of your mind. Like, okay, that's over. We're going to move on without it. And then she started volunteering again. And so I was like, oh, crap. Now, here we go again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. Then it really came to the forefront. Obviously, you, you had to face it head on. And mm-hmm. watching the movie Unplanned, as someone already convicted of the right to life of the unborn and horrors of Planned Parenthood, I found that what bothered me most was the differences in your fundamental ethical principles as a married couple and how you, as the pro-life counterpart, was able to accept abortion, paying your family salary for one, and of course your daughter exposed to sex toys inside Planned Parenthood and noticing blood on her mom's shoes. So how did you manage to remain spiritually unified to one another through all of that? Oh, well, uh, I think when we started dating, I was probably at the lowest of low in my Christian walk. You know, we were, Abby was like, oh, we got to find a church. I was like, do we? Okay. I didn't want to go in, you know, and I, I guess, and part of it was knowing where she worked and 
what that meant and how the church felt about it. I, I didn't feel comfortable walking in. And, and it's kind of shown in the movie that she didn't feel comfortable, too. And the church we ultimately ended up at was First Baptist in Bryan, Texas or something like that. And we spent about a year or two there. And this was after, you know, I guess in the book, if you read it, uh, there's a pastor. It was like, you can come to church here, but you can't be members because of where you work. So we just kept hopping around. And this church was like, you can be members, but don't expect us to support you kind of thing. And a lot of people there kept trying to talk her out of her where she was working. And I guess in the back of my I was like, ah, maybe they can do a better job than I did. Trying to talk her out of working at Planned Parenthood coming from me is like when a spouse tries to tell the other spouse how to lose weight. Right. It never goes well. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like. Uh, you, you don't get to tell me that. You get, you got to go with another source or else it just comes off as a fight. Right. I guess it was more, there was a lot of go along to get along. We would have our little discussions and every once in a while I get to sneak in a little bit of my feelings towards that. But then she also would come home with the Planned Parenthood talking points, which were very good. Right. And very effective. And sometimes they would kind of make me think, well, I guess, okay, I guess I could see where that works or why that is. And and she kept saying, well, her passion was about helping women and she wanted to reduce the number of abortions. And I could get behind that if somebody that didn't love abortion. I, I hated it. Right. And then there was also the sob story she would come home with. She would never tell the stories about the college girl that came in and said, I need to get this alien out of me those stories came later after she left and right you'd have a hard time convincing me that abortion is not 99.9 percent .9 of the time a matter of convenience you know i never got those convenient stories i always got those really hard sob stories where you're like man i could see why she did that even though we as christians in a society we should have stepped up to help that woman instead of just accepting abortion as the uh, automatic cure-all right so, absolutely yeah. i know that was for me, it was so hard to grapple with because I, I knew I had to have you on the podcast because as I was watching it, I was just fascinated by your character's role. And oh, they, I came out smelling like a dozen roses. I mean, big time. <laughs> yeah. And that is, I'm like, Ugh, how long do I wait to burst everybody's bubble? How was that? I mean, to watch Brooks Ryan playing you. I mean, that must have just been surreal to watch somebody playing you on the big screen. He did such a good job, and Brooks and I have become good friends, and we text each other every once in a while, and actually did his uncle's podcast, which was really fun, because uh, they're big wrestling fans, as am I, so I got to talk about wrestling for an hour with a bunch of guys, <laughs> and, and they got to play extras in the movies with Brooks, and, oh, that's but really no, Brooks and I have we've become friends, and he didn't contact me until, I never met him until he was done playing me, like really? done recording all his stuff. So he didn't study he, you or anything? No, he did, his wife, as she said, stalked us a little bit on Facebook. <laughs> And she read the book and uh, she would kind of tell him stuff. He's like, no, no, I just want to go in with the script and play it from that and play off Ashley. And they had great chemistry too, him and Ashley. No, it, it was funny. When we, when we met, we hit it off right off the bat and we figured out we had a lot in common. We're both, I don't know if I'd say introverts, but we don't come right out talking to people and that sort of thing. And both very laid back. And you know, we both kind of enjoyed the whole, uh, I used to, I don't anymore. I have dad bought out the yin yang, but <laughs> you know, the whole fitness thing was, was a big deal to us. And I didn't like taking pictures of him. He was too handsome and too fit. <laughs> And so, <laughs> but yeah, we, I enjoy what he did. There's only one line in the movie I don't like. Really? What is it? On the ground and she goes, how can God forgive me? And I just go, because he's God. And I'm like, I promise <laughs> I'm for that. <laughs> I would have said something much better than because he's God. But, you know, they got a short time to tell the story and I had to put it in a nutshell, I guess. <laughs> 
Oh my gosh, that's funny. So you were like, I just want to redeem myself here. I would have never yeah. said that. For me, I just kept on thinking, oh, what what's going on? I can see like not being that convicted anymore or being far away from your faith and thinking, okay, it's wrong, but I can see there's also mm-hmm. a lot of good points. But then it's like how you hear Abby's boss in the movie saying abortions paying your salary. And I was like, oh, that's the thing that like if my husband was an abortionist, that's the thing that would get me. Not only is he, you know, working and and part of what he's doing is this, but it's like, oh, dagger, you know, our salary is being paid by this. I think that was the thing that I was like, I just don't think that I could wrap my mind around that. You know, she didn't, I guess it never occurred to me that way. Maybe it did. And I just chose to ignore it because we we did have bills to pay. We had a a daughter to raise and a family. She made a little more than me, probably about 10 grand more a year than me as a teacher. And uh, she got there quick. I mean, she went from volunteer to answering the phones to uh, counseling. And then she did community outreach. And then boom, real fast, she was the director. Right. And there's good money in that. And all I thought was, okay, good. We can go out to eat every once in a while, pay for our car bill. And like, I guess you just kind of think of how you're providing. Writing, but you don't think about where it's coming from right. as easily. Because, I mean, we were we were in our late 20s, early 30s, and really just kind of getting started on life and trying to, to work everything out. But, yeah, when she had that conversation with her boss, she didn't come home right away and tell me all about it. I think she tried to be a good soldier and talk herself into what her boss said as being her new mission. But I think she was okay with earning that money because she thought she was making these numbers rare and helping women. She really thought she was like this woman's advocate. You know, she was really doing these wonderful things. So I I know she'd never blinked an eye at how she made her money. But then there was one day she came home. She goes, you know, a lot of money in abortion. This is probably about midway after that meeting. And from when she quit, she came on. She's like, we just made about $25,000 just in one day off so-and-so number of abortions. And I was like, wow, that grossed me out. Yeah, that's kind of like, ooh, how do we accept this is blood money? You know what I mean? That was when I was still I was I didn't like the pro-life movement because we'd gotten death threats. Right. But I still hated abortion, too. And when she said that, I was like, you can't tell me all 30 women that came in there all were raped were or dying or something. Yeah. Stories, you know, like there's college girls that had one night stands at New Year's Eve or like these circumstantial stories. And I understand that, yes, parenting is hard, but dang, dude, you know, like right. that's harsh. She made that kind of money in one day off of what? It did make me a little sick to my stomach. And I remember it. And I think it made her sick to her stomach, too. Right. Because she was starting to really peel the onion. That was kind of the process of trying to be the good soldier and rectifying what she really knew to be the truth. And then with Grace, too, like you see that scene, which you confirmed is true, because I think some people are like, well, I don't know if they just put that in for the movie where Grace sees the blood on her shoes and says, you know, what is that? So it seems like at least in the movie, it's also a turning point for your character where you're kind of like, all right, now our daughter's even getting to the point where she's asking questions and noticing things. And it's kind of getting Mm -hmm. to the point where we're going to have to explain things to her that we might not necessarily want to explain. Right. No, I never... There were moments, even when Grace was younger, when Abby said, I think there's going to come a day when I'm going to have to explain this to God, what I've done. Mm. And like, you know, she back and forth with it, too. So when that happened with Grace, that face that Brooks made for me, he nailed it. Are you happy with yourself? When Grace had a sex toy in her hand one time and I went into the clinic and I'm like, are you kidding me? This is, why aren't we snatching that out of her hand and hiding it? Right. I can't imagine any dad seeing his little girl in that position. It 
Ah, uh, yeah. I mean, that got me too when he said, are you happy with yourself? And just his face, it seemed like, oh, this thing's coming crashing down right. very soon. Well, I tell people the movie, it smushes a lot of things together. And so like that scene would be almost 10 or 20 moments where I was like, are you kidding me? Not just exposing grace to things, just things I would see him like, really? You're okay with that? You're okay with supporting that? I told a story about how uh, we went to listen to this pro-choice minister talk about abortion and why the church should be supporting it. And he had all kinds of malarkey to say. And it was at a lady's house and about 30 supporters showed up and somebody asked him, when do you believe life begins? And he said, oh, I believe it's when the mother says, I love you and I'll keep you. Oh, wow. That's ridiculous. I heard that and I was like, is it a magic trick? I don't understand. I mean, some what, people could have been work? like, well, I, I'm still not alive yet. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, <laughs> I mean, seriously. Well, and Abby and I, on the way home, one of us brought it up. And I was like, so how do you feel about this? She's like, oh, I thought it was great. I think it just kind of justified what she did. Right. And so she latched onto it. She's like, oh, man, a minister just told me. If a minister said it, yeah. Yeah, like a, a man of God of the yes. church just told me all these things. It really kind of like allows me to justify what I'm doing. And I don't have to feel so bad anymore. And I looked over it. I use colorful language. That's the biggest little BS I've ever heard. Right. And that was a very quiet ride home for the rest <laughs> of the night. <laughs> That was supposed to be in the movie, but they ended up using it as Brooks' audition. Okay. That story. And he asked me about it. He's like, was that true? I was like, it was true. How do you know about it? He's like, oh, that's what I auditioned with. I took oh, the, but it got the cut. movie because I wanted to do that scene on film. And I was like, oh, no, they took it out because they didn't want the audience cheering me on. They were like, you're already looking great, Doug. We need Abby to look a little less villainous. You know? <laughs> so they had to take that out. Yeah. They had to throw in a fight or something. I don't know. Something to take you down a notch because you're looking like the, <laughs> the saintly standby. Right. Well, you know, if they get to know me, they'll find out a little better. <laughs> They're like, you shouldn't be doing these kind of live interviews. Well, the directors, they joke that if God forbid anything ever happens to Abby, Doug is taken care of. He's going to have women lined up. They told us <laughs> that before they, they made the movie. They're like, he's going to have women lined up, ready to marry him. With all eight yeah, kids. I, please stay with me forever. <laughs> So Abby explains how she originally considered herself one and done after giving birth to baby Grace. It wasn't until six years later that you welcomed number two and six more have followed. So what mm -hmm. changed in your heart to want to welcome so many children into your family? And how do you respond to those who are judgmental of your decisions on this side of the fence? Okay, well, I think growing up, my number was always five. Okay. But then once Abby and I got together, her number was always one because she was an only child for the most part. She has a half-brother that lived with her on and off, but they weren't really raised together. And he's significantly older than she is. So she was raised as an only child. So she felt like, oh, yeah, one. That's how you do it. That's what my parents did. And for me, I, I don't know. If you ask me what do you want to do when you grow up when I was a kid, I couldn't be like, oh, I want to be a fireman. I always thought, I don't know what I want to do. I'll do any job. I don't care. But I know I want to be a dad and a husband. I know I, I can't wait to have kids. And so I had a big number in my mind. But once she got to working at Planned Parenthood, I kind of started to realize that career was going to take over and maybe one is it. I just felt blessed and lucky to get to raise one. I was like, at least I get to be a dad. 
Okay. You know, and divorce was never an option. Right. We always had a make it work attitude and she'd already gone through that once. You know, once you're past the point of deal breakers, you see it through even the hard times. And once you fall in love with somebody, deal breakers just aren't a thing. She could have started smoking and I'd have been like, <laughs> yeah, well, I wish you wouldn't smoke, but I'm not going anywhere, you know? <laughs> and so once she left Planned Parenthood and we kind of snuck our way into the Catholic church there, what really attracted me to the Catholic church is I read Theology of the Body for Beginners. Uh-huh. Yep, Christopher West. Uh-huh. Christopher West. And that church teaching on contraception and all that, Catholic teaching yep. on that, it was so mind-blowing and eye-opening. I was like, yeah, oh my gosh, it's like, oh, look at all the scripture in here that supports this. And just the obvious, the story our bodies tell, you know, yes. that we've been gifted with these wonderful bodies and these miracles that we're walking around with and we take for granted. And so I was like, oh yeah, I'm in. And uh, Abby, I kind of told Abby where I felt about that. And she still had her IUD in. That was her former birth control. Right. And she still had it in from when, right after Grace was born, they put that in. So I guess probably Grace was three-ish by the time Abby left. So she probably had had it in for two and a half, three years. I don't think she was ready to remove it yet. And when we finally started going to more masses, one day she was looking around at all the babies in there and she's like, I'm getting it out. And she didn't tell me that. She just kind of had this epiphany. I think she's written about it before too. So she went to the doctor and they were like, why would you take this out? Why do you want this out? And they right. kept questioning her. She's like, stop asking me questions and get it out. Right. <laughs> and they got it out. She came home and she looked at me. She goes, I took my IUD out today. So I really want to start having more kids. And I looked at her and I said, that is the sexiest thing you've ever said. <laughs> <laughs> I could not believe, like, oh my gosh, we're going to get to finally start growing our family. Then we went through about two years of infertility because of all the yep, hormones taken and just the toll it had taken on our body. Yep. And oh my gosh, we could do another two hour podcast just yep. on that, on my wife alone and what it did to her. And they say when they remove an IUD that's been in for a number of years, I mean, they say it could take one to two years just reasonably mm -hmm. to completely flush out the hormones from your system. Obviously, there are some people that you know, it, get pregnant like that, but... IUD has such a tiny amount of hormones, it, it adds to your body, but it completely puts your body out of sync. It's like saying, my heart is beating too well, I really need to make this stop. Right. You know, and that's what we do with our fertility yes. as men and women. We're like, oh, no, no, I'm too good at making children. My, my <laughs> Something's wrong here. Just, it's, it's working too good. <laughs> I can't have that. I, I don't want to learn how to use that to my advantage. I just need to make it stop. It's the only system in our body that we're like, oh, we should break this, you know, right. that we don't want to work properly. So when she got that taken out, we had our first son, Alex, when Grace is about five years old. They're about five years apart. Okay. We, we had such a hard time conceiving. And then she just started doing some sort of calendar thing on her phone for like a month and boom. Ah, we're off to the races. And so she's like, cool, I'm going to go become an NFP instructor. Whoa, she really doesn't mess around. It's like once she's no, in, she's God. all in. A, she's all drive. She's Me, like, I'm, I'm taking like, my IUD out and I'm going to teach NFP now. Here we go. Yeah, yeah, and so she went and it was right after Alex was born that she finally went to the class to become an instructor. And she calls me. She goes, I'm ready to have another one. Let's do this now. Oh my gosh. Oh, damn. <laughs> You're like, what? We haven't even hit the on? six weeks. And she's like, yeah, let's, I want another one. And sure enough, you wow. know, they say it only takes one time. So a month later, we conceived again. And so our first two boys are only 11 months apart. Wow. And then after Luke was born, we're like, we should wait. <laughs> nope. <laughs> oh, my God. We had another boy, and they're 14 months apart. And I was like, we should definitely wait. And then Abby, six months later, says, let's adopt this baby. And so <laughs> we just kept going. And I don't know, once you get to three, what's you another might as well one? just add more. I know. Yeah. 
No big deal. And plus, I was home. Sure, she was traveling and doing very well. And I didn't have a job to go to to distract me from my kids. So it just made sense. Like, let's take advantage of it. It's only hard for a little while. These moments only last a little while. And then it just kind of gets easier. Right. Like, things change. The challenges change. But the the kid stage, it only lasts for a little while. And it's fun and beautiful. And I love it. But my favorite age is five. Really? To be honest with you. Because they still think Mickey Mouse is awesome and real. But they also can tell you if their stomach hurts. Yes. You know, they can ride rides. And so, yeah, I, I love five. Our daughter was traumatized at a fair with people dressed up as Mickey and Minnie, but it was like the summertime and it was really hot. So they took their hats off. Oh, no. And she was like <laughs> horrified that Mickey's head was off, like decapitated. <laughs> she was so upset about it for so long after. She'd say, remember when Mickey's head fell off? And it was just, <laughs> oh, okay, that's going to be a therapy bill 20 years right. down the road. But it always amazes me, people that convert to Catholicism, one of the things that you hear over and over and over again is the church's teaching on fertility and natural family planning and against contraception and that openness to life which seems bizarre because in our society it seems like that would be the last thing you know a stopping point it seems like people might be able to get on board with a number of different things but it seems like touching on that fertility thing and trying to wrap your mind around that when you've understood this culturally accepted belief that we should be in control and responsible of our own fertility and be able Mm -hmm. to choose the number of children and all of these kind of things, it seems like it's such a leap. But yet over and over again, there are so many converts that say that teaching alone was kind of what pushed them over the edge towards the church. So that blows my mind when I hear converts say that. And it's a common thing that people say. Right. You get so much information on it all at once, right? You know, I guess for cradle Catholics that grow up in the faith, it's all spread out and maybe they don't even appreciate it as it's presented to them. And, you know, people always say that like, Converts are the best apologists for the church, but I don't know. I mean, there there are so many cradle Catholics that really do understand their faith, and maybe they come back to their faith and they kind of get this deeper understanding of, oh, I didn't even know that was happening at mass. I didn't realize we were reading the gospel every single time, and like there's this yes. thing called a Bible, and I can crack that sucker open at home, and I can <laughs> own one myself. Oh my gosh, I can study this. <laughs> this thing. is gold. And so. <laughs> But yeah, with with the teachings on NFP and fertility, and and I guess my thing is now what I try to get across with young men is I think we would do away with promiscuity if we were to teach young men that fertility is shared. Hmm. You know, it's a shared responsibility because it takes two, and you can't just put it on the woman to know when she's fertile, to choose the right birth control, you know, just thinking as, as a secular society. Why are men getting involved, or women even, with somebody else if they don't know if they want to parent with this person? Right. Commitment should be the first thing on your mind when getting involved in these relationships, and you don't know they're committed till you get them down the aisle and put a ring on their finger and take those vows in front of God. Or If we stop looking at sex as this right that we mm-hmm. have, and what's even crazier to me is people are like, oh, no, no, it's healthy. You got to have enough orgasms in the in the year. Right. Or else you're just going to go crazy. Apparently, this is the medication you need. is tons yes. and tons of orgasms. So we're, where we all have the right to that. But we can't separate fertility. It, the the fun of sex, it all goes together. You cannot separate the thing and commitment. It all has to be there for it to be right. And until we put those three things back together, I think our society is just out of luck. 
So what voice do you think men legitimately have in opposing abortion and those women who choose to work in clinics? Where are men in the my body, my choice equation? Oh, well, you know, it's you're not aborting your own body, right? So it's a human rights issue. Women are the only ones getting abortions. Men don't get abortions, right? So, mm-hmm. yes, I think women should be at the forefront, changing the narrative, being like, we don't need abortion to be empowered, to have careers, to be moms, mm-hmm. and to uh, have control over our fate. Even when surprises come, we're strong enough to handle it. Because abortion says, no, parenting is hard, and you're not strong enough. This is going to be difficult. You should abort. And I think for men, what we really need to do is start mentoring the next generation of men to come up and be like, you should be so supportive and so good. And you should make her feel like I don't need an abortion right? because I have this support system. I chose this partner and uh, he's going to be there for me. And I don't even have to go into an abortion clinic because I know I'm going to have everything I need. And even parents, like if my daughter got into an abusive relationship and found herself pregnant in a crisis pregnancy, she's moving in with us. Right. And we're going to take care of her, yes. right? You know, we're going to deal with the situation as it comes. And we're not going to like be like, oh, no, you made a bad choice. You have to go deal with it and be responsible. Yes, there are consequences that come with it, but we're not going to leave her high and dry. We're going to take care of her needs. When Jesus says in the Bible, when you gave that man a shirt, you gave me a shirt. You right. fed that guy, you fed me. And that's the gospel. That's living the gospel. Absolutely. Is getting out there and being the example right. and showing people how it's done. And I think that's the man's role. And being at the fence. Because, you know, a lot of these women that go in, maybe their dad sucked. Maybe their yes. boyfriend is terrible. You know, yes. whatever it is. And so to see a man standing out there that's saying, I'll help you. Right. I'll support you. And I don't know if men always need to talk. I think it's good for men to be there to talk to boyfriends. Yes. And just kind of be like, hey, that's your child in there. You need to suck it up and go stick up for your family. I bet she's waiting on you to step up and say, hey, I'll take care of you. You know, I think a lot of women are waiting for that guy to be like, oh, we don't need this. We're going to raise this family together. We're a team, you know, and to really kind of take charge, not in a patriarchal sort of way, obviously, but just in a, I'm verbally saying, I'm here for you. And you don't have to do this. We're going to do this together. And I think that's where a man's presence is just kind of needed. I like how you said the support to the mentoring of the next generation, because that's something that we're lacking so much, too. As you said, if you don't have a good role model, male role model in your life and you don't really know who to be or how to be or how to treat others, how to treat women, if your dad didn't treat your mom well, you know, you don't really Mm -hmm. understand how to do that. You know, you might understand this doesn't feel right or this doesn't feel good to hurt this person or make her cry or what whatever else. But a lot of times you just feel like you don't know how to change. It's just who you are. It's who your dad was. It's who his dad was. Right. It's who you are. Mm -hmm. So you kind of become that. Your family joined the Catholic Church Easter 2012. What brought you to Catholicism and what are your thoughts on repentance? How have you walked through the guilt with Abby? I think that's a big one because the church's teaching on repentance and forgiveness, I'm sure, had a big impact on you guys after you embraced Catholicism. Mm -hmm. And you said that you already saw flickers of that with Abby throughout her journey away from Planned Parenthood, where she was feeling like, I'm going to have to face God at one point in time. And then as the movie shows and as her book shows, there's definitely a point where all that kind of came crashing down on her and the weight of what she had been involved with, the crushing guilt. So how did you walk through that with her? How did you guys find freedom from all that? 
You know, I think a lot of it for Abby was uh, talking to other people that have been through it too and finding out that there are other people with that, like you said, the weight of that crushing guilt. And it it's hard to walk around with. And I had to walk around with it too. I was complicit. I supported her as she worked there. And again, like you said earlier, we paid our bills with that money, mm-hmm. you know, and we accepted it without a whole lot of question, this lifestyle that we had. And there were a lot of roads you go down that in that world that you're like, oh my gosh, I was not raised this way. I was not raised to think like this. What, what is going on with my brain? And so uh, with coming into the church, I feel like the thing we couldn't wait to get to was the Eucharist. The thing we dreaded the most was first confession. Mm-hmm. And so the best way I can describe as an adult, your first confession, and this is a PG-13 thing, <laughs> it's diarrhea of the soul. You know what I mean? <laughs> like you just let it all out, like get it all out there and... Uh, what is so beautiful, though, about first confession is the Holy Spirit is there with you to say, to remind you, not to make you feel guilty about your sins, but to remind you, these are your sins, and you don't have to carry them anymore. This is your moment to put them at the feet of Christ and walk away, and you're done with it. You don't have to carry that burden anymore. You're going to be reminded. You're going to suffer through it sometimes, but you can still take that story and use it to help others. Right. You know I think that first confession is huge for both Abby and I, but more especially for Abby. She came out, I don't know how many tissues she went through for that thing. She sat down, looked at her priest, and, and just started bawling. You know, and, and what's funny is when we came in at Easter time, so there was like six priests in one parish, long lines, because it was oh, that no. week, supposed to go to confession. <laughs> and she's in there for an hour. Oh, yeah, she's just going at it. And I went right after her. It was funny, I was like, you just did confession with my wife. And, you know, and he's oh, like, no. he's oh, like, oh, okay. no. <laughs> and I know it's about to come from you, too. And so anyway, and I think that's really just the beauty of this faith. Growing up Protestant, there were these times when you would go to church camp every summer and half the kids would get rebaptized and resaved and renew their faith. And I was like, if only they had confession. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like that moment to just reconnect with Christ and reestablish that uh, relationship. And I think that's what it was for us. Cause you know, again, we were, we were raised in the Christian faith. We consider ourselves Christians, but that confession moment was just, that was a turning point. I think for both of us of where we were able to just kind of let that guilt go. It still creeps up on us every once in a while. You still have to figure out how to mourn the loss of those children she aborted, but you can't dwell on it too long because that can really mess with your head of, yes. of like, well, if I hadn't aborted those kids, would I have this family I have now? And like, you can't, you can't go much. there. No. Your brain can't handle it. Your heart can't handle it. And you're really going to hurt yourself if you just continue to make yourself sad over this thing. Yes. And I think that's kind of a problem in some pro-life, these retreats that women go to post-abortive, is they're kind of taught how to cry for the rest of their life oh, and how to feel yeah. bad for the rest of their life. And sometimes they're taught how to feel empowered and use their story to help other women. But I don't know if they're really taught how to like move forward as right. well. And through confession and through the Catholic faith and really with Abby going on the road and having to heal in public, essentially. She had to heal on camera and go through this whole thing in front of everybody. And so her story is completely different than anyone else's. It's very unique. Her psychotherapy, right? Oh was constantly gosh. out there talking about it. I think a lot of people do not envy her. You know what I mean? Having to go through <laughs> that in front of so many people and not only people that are compassionate towards that and saying, hey, this is great, but also I'm sure, obviously, the Planned Parenthood side of things, people attacking her during oh, yeah. that healing 
would mm-hmm. be for most people they would say i just can't do this right now maybe 10 years down the road or something like that maybe after i've processed this and gone through it but she has just done it with so much grace it's mm-hmm. just incredible well you know i think she learned from that how to help other women that come through her ministry and then there were none they've helped over 500 women in six years leave or men and women leave the abortion industry and uh, find new jobs a life-affirming jobs and move on with their life and some of them are like no nah, i'm ready to talk about it and some of them are like no i'm not ready. i just want to move on with my life and some need copious amounts of healing before they can go on to talk about it like i said abby healed in public and i think that was the mistake that so many pro-lifers make and i get it you get a clinic worker that comes out or you save a mom or you save a child and you can't wait till your next banquet so you can roll them out on stage and say look what we did yeah it's almost you kind of objectify that person mm-hmm. you turn them into a trophy it's not a malicious mistake it's just a mistake and i think abby kind of learned from that like we gotta slow down we gotta wait until these people are ready to go on stage right you can't force them to share their story if they don't want to they're not all built like Abby. Abby was definitely built for this. She was made to do this, and she was able to handle it. She kind of has that tough exterior and that soft interior to where she was able to handle it. And not everybody can, but we do run into people every once in a while that are just like Abby and can't wait to get out there and run Planned Parenthood through the mud as right. soon as they can. <laughs> and then the last thing I'll ask you is, what do you want for your own daughters, and what message do you have to women without a strong father figure, perhaps even those hurt directly by abortion? Oh, man. Dagger. Yeah. (laughs) For our daughter, Grace, she's 12 now, and she keeps saying she wants to be a pro-life speaker. And so when the movie came out, it was so much fun. Uh, She goes to a private Catholic school, and Abby and I rented out a theater so that the school parents and teachers and all of them could go see the movie. But Abby was out of town for it. So I got together with the principal. I was able to get Grace an opportunity with a microphone in her hand, say thank you to the school, and introduce the film. And she did a tremendous job. And, you know, when we went to the premiere in L.A., this one young lady, reporter, grabbed Grace, stuck a microphone in her face, asked her some great questions, and Grace nailed it. I mean, she was wow. gorgeous. She had her dress on, her hair all done, and you wouldn't have... I mean, she just nailed it. And she was so good, <laughs> so poised, and she had a great answer for the question. Papa. Oh, my gosh. And I, I handed my phone to the gal doing interviews behind the one talking to Grace, and she's like, oh, yeah, I'll definitely take a picture for you. And she got a wonderful picture of me and Grace. I can't wait to get it framed. And me just standing behind her, watching her talk, and I was like, don't... Don't ask me any questions because I'm caught up in the moment with Grace. And so beautiful. I I can't imagine how hard it must have been for her to watch the movie. It's hard enough for people to watch the movie, but it must be such a a different experience to know that's your mom, you know, someone that you love so much. And I mean, you obviously it wasn't a shock. You were there. You saw it. But for Grace... I mean, I'm sure you guys have been open with her, but she just knows a lot of... Of, She knew a lot about what was coming, and she's a different kind of gal. The ultrasound-guided abortion scene in the first 10 minutes, she cried instantly, and we covered her eyes, oh. and uh, she handled the most of it really well. But I'll tell you a scene that really hurt her feelings. She knew that when Abby got pregnant in the movie that that was her, and uh, when she goes in the bathroom and her boss goes, you know we can take care of that for you. Ugh, so for her to hear... I'm getting a little emotional now just talking about it, is uh, that there was a time when Abby's boss was encouraged, and they used to joke with her, and they used to like kind of tease her, and Abby could not wait to get past that 20-week period or whatever it was, 16 weeks, I think. That was the threshold that their clinic abortions caught off was a certain number of weeks, and Abby was like so relieved because she knew the jokes and the harassment would stop. 
And so when Grace saw that, that really kind of hurt her feelings. She cried for that too. It didn't even occur to me when we went into that movie that that would be something that she would see. I think that that, if she wants to be a pro-life speaker, that idea that her life was on the line is probably something that she can share with a lot of abortion survivors and a lot of other people that have been in those positions. I'm sure that will give her something that will be very powerful in the future Mm -hmm. with connecting with other people that have been hurting in that way. Honestly, I think she's going into religious life. She just has this (laughs) crazy connection with God and the saints and I don't know. She blows us away all the time with the things she says, and she teaches us more about her faith. I mean, she goes to a Catholic school, so she comes home with stuff, and we're like, no idea that was a thing. (laughs) She had to dress up as a saint and do a report on one. She chose Mother Teresa because she knew that we had gone to her canonization. She just really follows our lives. She knows the saints' lives, and she just makes those connections for us. And ah, She blows my mind. So what message do you have to women without a strong father figure, perhaps even those hurt directly by abortion? I would almost say find women who did have a strong father figure to be your mentor. I don't know if you need to find a male mentor so much as a woman who still knows what you're going through and also knows what it's like and had that example growing up of Mm. a strong male. That's a good perspective. Yeah. You have your example through the saints and especially St. Joseph, right? And how he took care of Mary and how he said yes. And he has that very adopted father example. There's so little of him in the Bible, but what is in there is very powerful. Like, can you imagine? He got to say, hey, Jesus, get me a hammer. Yeah. You know? <laughs> his job was raising Jesus, showing him his trade, getting him through the ropes and worry about him when he disappeared. Wow, that's so cool. And like, he was a parent. You know, we have that example. And so I think to those women that didn't have that example growing up, look for a mentor. Look for uh, qualities in men that are the opposite, I guess, of what yeah, you grew up seriously. with. Seriously. Like, it's not a bad thing if a man opens the door for you or pulls your chair. He's just right. trying to take care of you. He's showing you that respect. Look for and, chivalry. Uh, right. And it's okay for that kind of thing to happen. It doesn't mean he's not saying you're weak and you can't do it yourself. He's just saying like, gosh, I love you so much. I want to do everything I can for you. He was raised by a certain kind of man too. Amen. You know, I remember telling my friend, I don't know what's wrong with me. Every time I go in a restaurant, I take off my hat. And he goes, because you were raised right. Because <laughs> you are raised in Texas. <laughs> yeah, that's right, buddy. You have manners, sir. <laughs> so, you know, you just look for certain qualities and know what you want for raising a family in the future. Try to figure that out and you figure it out together and go from there. Well, I want to thank Doug Johnson for being with us today. You can find more about him at his blog, Doug on Tap. Thanks so much, All right, Doug. Thanks. No I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. I hope you've enjoyed listening to some of my podcasts here at Breadbox Media. But today I'm speaking to you about a different opportunity. In September 2020, I'll be leading a fantastic pilgrimage cruise from Rome to the Holy Land, and then on the way back, stopping at the cities of St. Paul, Ephesus, Athens, Corinth, and more. While we're at sea, I'll be lecturing on the Gospels, history, or mystery. When we're on land, 
I'll invite you to join me as we visit all of the holy sites, celebrating Mass, worshiping together, and having a wonderful time of fellowship. If you'd like to know more about this pilgrimage cruise, go to my website, dwightlongenecker.com, go to the right sidebar, and you'll see a picture there which invites you to get more information. Go to my website, dwightlongenecker.com, right sidebar, click on the picture of the cruise ship, and you'll get all the information you need. Alternatively, you can call the company that's organizing the tour at 800-247-0017. 800-247-0017. Ask for Farmalong and Ecker's Cruise to the Holy Land. Thanks for listening. Jack Kane Ford. Find your next Ford Tough vehicle at KaneFord.com.